Hey, everybody, this is Pastor Luke McDonald, and this is the Good News in the Neighborhood podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. You're going to find two things in this feed in this season. You're going to find Sunday sermons from our church in Palatine, Illinois, and you're going to find an occasional little piece of content that is towards our initiative to try to help our church read the Bible more regularly. It's called Good With Our Bibles. We're trying to read the Bible regularly, and we're trying to interpret it accurately. And that's what you're going to find in this feed. We are a multi-ethnic Bible-teaching life-giving church. This is our little theme song that you're hearing in the background. And uh, it helps us, anything you do, rating the podcast, sharing it, all that stuff helps the word get out. We're not trying to build the name of a church. We're trying to build the name of Jesus in our little local community. And if you found this, I hope it's useful to you. Thank you. Let's listen now. We're thankful to be in church. I'm Luke. If I don't know you, I'm the pastor here. And uh, I got a long way to go this morning, but I'm really excited about what is going to happen today. If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, you can turn to the book of Judges. That's what we've been uh, moving through together, and we've uh, made it now to uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11. I want to talk today. Um, I want to talk today about how uh, the past has a way of influencing the present. I want to talk today about how uh, the older we get, um, more than we maybe realize, the older we get, the more the things that were involved in the places where we've come from and uh, the families that we grew up in and the situations that we've been through, that that stuff has a way of lingering. And I want to uh, preach it to you from this passage. We've been learning, uh, I'm starting now in chapter 10 and, and verse 6. We're going to go through a story today, uh, Jephthah. And I, it says this, it says that the people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we've been learning that this is, uh, in the book of Judges, is part of a cycle that people back then and people now go through. People back then and people now go through this cycle. And uh, I think we have it for the screen. And the cycle is something like this. Um, we fall into sin Sin is any choice that I make that's different than the choice that God wants me to make, God commands that I make. Sin always brings about oppression, which is pain, difficulty, brokenness. And from that oppression, sometimes others put me in it, sometimes I put myself in it, I can turn to God in repentance, and then God delivers me. That happens sometimes in longer ways than I want to, and it happens in difficult, sometimes through difficult circumstances, but that brings about peace. But because of our sinful natures, we stay in peace for a while and then move back to sin. That happens to the people of Israel a few thousand years ago, and it happens to us right now. And so when it says there in chapter 10 and verse 6 that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, it's telling us that the cycle was starting again. It says, so, then, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. Then by verse 10, it says that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And then the Lord, verse 11, said to Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? He's pointing out all the times that happened before. He's saying, do you remember, didn't, didn't we do this already? Did we do this already? You know, you're like, okay, so I get it. Taylor Swift, new album. You got your heart broken, chose the wrong guy. You wrote a bunch of sad songs about it. Didn't we do this? 
And we didn't, didn't we do this already? Didn't we do this already? Didn't we do this already? The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? So the people, verse 16, it says, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And God became impatient over the misery of Israel. It was like he was wanting their pain to be over. Uh, this happened to me last night. One of uh, my children, who will remain nameless, was uh, sent to his room while his favorite team was playing in March Madness. And I realized that like the time that had been assigned for him to be in his room was going to be longer than the time left in the game. And I was trying to figure out a path to get him out of the problem that he had put himself in. That's kind of what's happening there. And the Lord was impatient over the misery of Israel. So we've moved around the cycle now to deliverance. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, they said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Like, who's the guy? Who's, who's going to step up? Who's going to lead? Who's going to do what needs to happen? That's in verse 18. Whoever does is going to be the head. All right, now the, it flips to the next chapter, and now we've kind of zoomed in on that question, who's going to be the head? This is what I came to talk about today. Listen to these verses. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, he was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Okay, so again, reminder that when we're uh, reading the stories of the Bible... This isn't like a, a Marvel movie or like a, the new season of The Mandalorian or whatever that you're excited to watch that someone came up with a clever story. This really happened, right? It really happened. So what really happened is there was this guy who was a mighty warrior, but he was also the son of a prostitute. That's not like a nasty name that someone was calling her. It's what she actually was. And so his father had gone to a woman for sex, and this woman had conceived and bore a son, for whatever reason, the way that things worked at that time was he didn't live with the mother. He lived at his father's house with his stepmother, and there were a whole bunch of other kids there. So just imagine the dynamic that this was apparently so well known that it's written down in the Bible that this one guy lived with his half-siblings his whole life as the one who was there because dad had messed up. And they grew up, and around the time they grew up, all the other brothers were like, you don't get to be here with us. You don't get to be here with us. You're not the, like a real one. You're not like the right one. You're not the, the proper person. No, you need to get out of here. So his brothers all drove him out, and so he had to get out of town. He went to some nasty out-of-the-way place and got with a bunch of people who were kind of hanging on the street like him. And they, when it says there at the end of verse 3 that he went out with him, it's, uh, it's like a kind of symbolic way of saying they were getting into all kinds of trouble. I have a few things to say that are going to help us today. First one is this. Uh, generational pain and sin, it affects my behavior. So you read that, and you think about what it's like to be that person. That person is in a lot of pain. 
They're there. They only exist on this earth because of something stupid their dad did. Apparently, mom's not even on the scene really in any meaningful way because she's not ever mentioned. And you're rejected by the people that you're only partially part of the family to begin with. It affects a person. It affects a person. He's born out of wedlock from sin in an embarrassing way. He's part of a family embarrassment from day one. There's a broken family system that led to where, however, his mother ended up in that profession in the first place. He has resentful siblings, likely physical and emotional harm as part of that. All of this points to the pain that comes from the sin that we get handed to us by another generation. And you realize as you get to a certain, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but you start out when you're really young, most people tend to think that um, everyone has kind of the same family as they do. Everybody's family kind of works the same way as theirs does. And then you get to like a certain age and a certain, you're like, oh wow, like the thing that I have is different. Maybe it's better, maybe it's worse, maybe it's better, but also weirder. (laughs) I don't know, but like, uh, I'm using both of those words, pain and sin, that came, that were given to you, both of those affect your behavior. The reason why I'm using both of those words is sometimes it isn't even something that someone did that was wrong. Some people have all kinds of pain in their background because their mom got sick and died or some terrible tragedy came and their dad was all of a sudden unemployed and the family lost their house. There's some things that come to us because of bad choices other people made. There's some things that come to us because things just didn't go the way that they wanted. But both of those produce bad outcomes. We see Jephthah as someone who came from a broken family, not two parents together. I'm not going to belabor this because I think it's obvious to you, but any study that you would find would say that children who grow up in families that aren't the two parents together experience negative outcomes. Way less likely to go to college, way more likely to end up in prison, The children of alcoholics are four times more likely than the general population to develop alcoholism. Broken things make more broken things. You may have heard it said this way, and it's true that hurt people hurt people. I mean, it's it's not from the Bible, so I can't tell you that it's like God's word, but only a little bit of life observation would tell you that the people causing the most pain are usually the people in the most pain. This is the person that God is deciding to use this Jephthah. But he comes into being used by God, both with incredible pain in his background, clearly. Also, some of it never gets dealt with, and so he repeats it. So, back to the text. Uh, It says, but when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, Gilead is the family that Jephthah comes from, They went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, hey, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that's why we turn to you now. You may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Okay, so the same people that cast him out, he like went out, and this is like, this part sounds like a lot of movies that you've seen. He's out there, like, you know, 
he's training and it's like, you know, like when Rocky's going to fight the Russian guy, he's like running up and down mountains and like doing push-ups and he probably grew a big beard and out without any help, Jephthah becomes a mighty warrior and it's time for war and everyone's like, who should we put in charge of the army? And the situation was desperate enough that they were now trying to reach for someone that they had previously rejected. And they're like, hey, we were thinking, brother, buddy boy, we were thinking like, maybe you could, maybe you could like lead the army. And uh, he's like, yeah, um, don't you like hate me and all that? <laughs> Remember like the whole thing where you like made me leave town and you know, he's kind of milking it a little bit. And they're like, okay, fine. Fine, fine, fine. If you lead the army, then you can be like the boss of the family is what they say there in verses 8 and 9. And it says to me this. It says to me that generational pain and sin affects my relational outlook. That when I've been hurt by people, it changes the way I interact with people. That when I've been broken by people, when something went really bad, like... When I went through a divorce, it changed the way I could think about any relationship after this. When I got really, really betrayed in a job, it makes me kind of have that side eye at the boss forever from here. The, the stuff that happens, but not just the stuff that happens to me, the, the stories that my parents told me, the stories that my grandparents told me. I, we, I'll say this delicately. If you've ever had someone in your family uh, that was around during the Depression, they like hate how much all of us spend on coffee and like won't ever give in to that. Because the people that grew up in that generation knew what it was like, many of them, to have nothing, and they just can't wrap their minds around ever having something. Anybody have anybody in their family like that where they're just, were like, you, they just, it was so painful what it was like that they'll never get over it. And they just, that's what's happening here. Uh, what happens to me in my relationships affects the way that I take relationships from here. And one of the reasons for that is um, we tend, if we've been through pain, been really lonely, gone through something very difficult, it becomes a struggle for us to evaluate the relationships that we have accurately, and it becomes a struggle for us to see challenges or problems clearly and not to bring all this other stuff into them. Uh, this is something that I've learned that's been helpful to me. Uh, you start to, you need to learn to evaluate relationships through like this little three-part grid. I think I have a little slide to put on the screen. This has been really helpful to me. I'll teach it to you. Uh, that outer ring, these are the least close and important relationships in your life. They're ones that are formed through a common project. These are friendships or relationships that are built on extracting value from each other. The person is, other person is primarily seen as a commodity and when the project ends, the relationship ends. So if you've ever been on like, I don't know, you, uh, your kid was on a sports team and you had all these parents that you would talk to on the sidelines and then the season ended and you never saw any of the people again and it didn't matter because it was a thing that existed for a while. A lot of work relationships are like this. A lot of relationships in life are like, they exist for a while. I uh, spend a lot of time at the coffee shop up the street and I know most of the people that work there by name and uh, I enjoy talking to them when I'm in and out for coffee. And then if, like, they stop working there, I'll never see any of them again, and they won't be sad that they never talked to me, and, you know, whatever, life goes on. That's a lot of relationships. A second, deeper relationship is formed around a common mission. These are things that are deeper than just typical stuff. It's like we really believe in. Uh, people who are involved in a group at church, maybe, this is like this, or people that you work with for such a long time that they become more than just coworkers, or people that you're involved in with more depth. I have a lot of relationships like this in the church here that 
there's a common sense of mission. It's not just a time or a place, it's more. But then the deepest is where you share a common heart. These are relationships that exist no matter how much the details may change. You may have like a college roommate that lives on the other side of the country that you haven't lived in the same place for 20 years, but you still talk every couple of weeks. There's this common heart that like unites you even while the details of life maybe don't put you together anymore. Here's why I said this is because often we find out that relationships that we cared about were of convenience when we thought they were of heart. And it's very devastating. So if you've ever been in a relationship with someone, this is why when people go through something challenging in church, it's so painful. This is why sometimes when people lose a job that they've had for a long time, it's so difficult. This is why when you, you're like, I thought we really cared about each other. I thought this relationship meant something. And then you realize, oh, wait, so I didn't make my sales numbers for like one quarter, and now that's it. We're never going to talk again. That's all, this, that's all this was? When you find out that a relationship that you thought was human, was actually transactional. It causes deep pain inside of you. And that's what Jephthah is pointing at in this passage. He's trying to connect. You can hear it in the words that he uses. He's like, so wait, you're going to bring me home? I thought you kicked me out. He's speaking from the pain that he felt from the rejection, but the family members that he's talking to don't care anything about his pain. They're just trying to figure out this battle and figure out this thing in front of them. He was trying to connect. They were trying to achieve. A couple of things. Pay careful attention to the people around you. When you like kind of feel like they're just, they care about me because of what I do for them, trust that feeling, one. And two, we must pay careful attention not to allow ourselves to get so deeply enmeshed with people that aren't safe because it causes an incredible amount of pain on the back end. Generational pain and sin changes the way that I look at people. Let me continue with the text. Verse 12, we're in now. So Jephthah, what he does is he sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he's like, hey, what do you have against me that you've come to fight? Why, why do we have to fight? Why do we have to fight? And then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom at the same time, saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom wouldn't listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, and he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. I'll explain to you what's happening in a second. Don't worry. And verse 21, it says, The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So there's all these little tribes that are all near each other, and there's war about to break out. And what Jephthah does, you could study this really deeply if you wanted, but what he does is he tries first to negotiate before he decides to fight. And he is able to figure out this one, now we're fine here, and we're fine here, and we're fine here. Now we are going to have to fight these people, but he is able to use kind of cunning and cleverness to solve a whole bunch of the problems. It shows something else, which is that generational pain and sin gives me unique insights. Uh, the very best people to help people stuck in addiction are people who've conquered addiction. The very best people to help uh, someone going through a really difficult financial challenge is someone who's been through the same challenge. The best 
We know. I can, you know what I'm saying. You know how to experience it. So we go through something so difficult, whatever it might be in your life and in your story. And it is really challenging, and we're talking about some of the ways to deal with that in this message. But it is also true that when God is bringing you through something, he is equipping you to help other people who walk the same path. All the time, uh, in my role as a pastor, I encounter situations where I want to care for the person, but I don't have, I haven't experienced what they've experienced, and so all I can add is my kindness, but I have to typically help who's someone who can help. I can look all around the room and I can see people who are living this out. That God is equipping you through the difficult things that you've been through to help others on the same path. Empathy comes from deep pain. I want to continue with the text because the end is the part that's the most important. So it says in verse 30, that was a dog. It's okay. We're fine. <laughs> so Jephthah made a vow to the Lord in verse 30. And Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. Listen to this. If you've never read this before, this is going to amaze you. He says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter! You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. I don't know if you've ever uh, done the bargaining with God thing. You know that, like, I didn't study for, like, my chemistry test, and you're like, Lord, if you'll just give me an A on this one, I promise I'll study for the next one. That, like, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this jam, but if you get me out of this jam, I promise I'm going to straighten up, I'm going to fix up, I'm going to deal with it, I'm going to... I don't know if you've ever been there or not. I won't make you show hands. That's what Jephthah does here. We don't know why. We don't know why. He has God's strength. It appears that the, the victory is his, but he's like, hey, so God, I promise that um, if you let me like, win this battle and everything, I promise that if you let me win this battle, whatever like, runs out the front door when I get home, I'm going to kill it uh, as a worship to you. I don't know if he had like a cat that he, his wife had that he really hated, that he was like hoping for. I, that part I would understand. I don't know how it got to like, but somehow or another, he wins the battle and then arrives home to find out that he has promised God that he's going to kill his daughter to say thanks to God. That is evidence of the effect that pagan worship had had on the people of Israel. Because world religions... There are world religions all around us in Palatine, Illinois. World religions always at their base have this. You do something to pay God back for all the dumb stuff you've done. So many pagan religions have child sacrifice at their core or this. You have to do something you don't want to do so that God will like not hate you and punish you. That's why the faith that we believe in is the only one, the only way, truth, and the life is that God didn't require us to give something of ours. He gave his son on our behalf. It's like, shouldn't be afraid to be excited about that amazing truth. 
But for our place right here, what we're talking about right in this moment, he makes this crazy vow. And now he's, in his mind, obligated to kill his only child because he promised God he would. Which says to me, and I hope to you, that generational pain and sin must be understood to avoid being repeated. So he came from a broken thing where he wasn't valued as a child. So he fell into a thing where he didn't value his own children. He was still operating from the anger and pain that he had grown up with. And so he, so what should have happened right here is he should have said, I'm an idiot. I should have never made that promise to begin with. I don't care what I said, but I'm not killing my daughter. There's no way that the great God of the universe wants that child to die as some stupid payment. Do we agree? So this is the part. Now it gets even crazier. His daughter says to him, verse 35, my father, uh, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. So do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and the Ammonites. She says, well, if that's what you promised, I guess that's what's supposed to happen. Only a person in a bad, broken, confused life situation would see their own life as of such little value. So it says in verse 39 that at the end of two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her according to the vow that he had made. He kills his own daughter because of a stupid promise that he had made because he didn't deal with the things that he felt about the pain in his childhood. And in what his daughter says to him, and now we're going to get to applying it to you and to me, in what his daughter says, she's like, oh, okay, well, that's what God wants you to do. And I guess that's what God wants you to do. Generational pain and sin compounds, gets bigger and more with devastating effects. It gets more, 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 it gets more. And you meet people that are in such incredible knots and such intense pain. And the crazy part about it is that so often we become the very things we hated about the family that we came from. I mean, if I was a youth pastor for many years, and it is the funniest thing, because I would meet these teenagers that I would be around, and they'd be like, all my dad ever does is work. He doesn't pay attention to our family. All he cares about is money. And then I'm like friends with them on like Facebook or whatever, and I see them now 15 years later, and all they do is work, and they never have any time for their family. And it's true with substance. It's true with neglect. It's true with... Uh, Kids who were devastated by the foolish choices of adultery that their parents made growing up and doing the same things. We, more than we realize, we get trapped. What I'm trying to say is this. What doesn't get healed gets handed down. What doesn't get healed gets handed down. Whatever you were handed, and again, you can't do much about the family that you were handed. Some of us come from great families. Uh, I'm preaching today. It's my mom's 60th birthday. She's in the room. I have a wonderful mother. I don't want to get sidetracked by that. Uh, I mean, I sort of do, but I would rather finish what I'm doing right now. I'm blessed to come from a wonderful family. Maybe you're, you are, maybe you're not. But even wonderful families hand us some junk that we've got to figure out. There's one uh, perfect family. That's the family of God that we get to be part of when we make it to heaven. But what doesn't get fixed in me gets handed down. Where you see this show up so often is you see it show up in uh, young couples that get together and they think, we're going to do it different. It was so messed up, you know, where we came from. We're going to do it better together. And then you go around once, you go around twice, you go around three times, and the same broken patterns emerge. 
the blessings and sins of our families going back two or three generations profoundly impact who we are today. You can ignore that reality, but it doesn't change that it's true. And if you track it back, you can do this. You see it in the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You have children turned into idols that end up hurting the children. You can see that, four generations. You see it in the story of David in the Bible, this the man not being able to control his sexuality and the damage that it causes. There's two examples. The stuff that is in the background, more than you realize, two, three generations, it profoundly impacts who you are today. So growing in Jesus requires, that's discipleship, it requires putting off the sinful patterns of our families of origin and relearning how to do life God's way. I have to put away stuff from over here, and I have to relearn how to do life God's way. Otherwise, it's just going to continue, 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 continue. Because unhealed wounds open us up to habitual sin against God and other people. And so often what you see, and this is what's happening in the story of Jephthah, the wound is driving the behavior, not the, not the healing that God can do driving the behavior. So people go on to the world, and they felt unaccepted in the family they came from. And so they're trying so hard. Anywhere I can go, I want to feel that acceptance. How can I find it? I'm going to find it in a bad relationship. I'm going to find it in a bunch of stupid people who do stupid things together. I'm going to find it in earning my way into having a great bank account. I'm going to, I'm going to, and if you're driven by the wounds, it's going to take you some really bad directions. It's going to take you some really bad places. And all of a sudden, you've developed habits that are difficult to get away from, relationships that are messing with you. Unhealed wounds open us up to this habit, 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 habit. And so God uses Jephthah to win the battle, but Jephthah destroys his family because he didn't figure out how to deal with the stuff that he had to deal with from the past. And I want better for you and for me. The way that uh, church folks often fail when they get to this intersection is they think that we'll just read the Bible more and try harder, and that'll fix everything. And if you've ever wondered why are there so many people who like going to church and have a Bible with so many things highlighted and underlined who are so miserably unkind and unfun to be around, it's because they have sort of morphed themselves into having a lot of brain spiritual stuff without maturing emotionally as a human being. Uh, I, don't know, I have it some, somewhere here. This uh, book was really helpful to me. Um, this book is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, it's very helpful to me. Uh, the author talks about how emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. Think about that for a second. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. You cannot be spiritually mature if you stay emotionally immature. And there's lots of people who know lots of Bible who've never dealt with the stuff that happened back here, the pain that they feel, and they go around hurting people in Jesus' name and then, like, if I can just be honest, messing things up for the rest of us. And we can do better, dear friends. So 
Uh, there's so many things about our world that are messed up, but one thing about our world that is getting better is that we are becoming more comfortable with talking about these type of topics, which I'm very thankful for. And I don't want you or me to get stuck with these unhealed wounds because they're going to break the stuff you care about the most. I, um, I think I can share this. I was here on Thursday night preaching the same message, and uh, there was this sweet woman here uh, who I know a little bit. And I asked her permission if I could say this. I, she came up to me after the sermon and she said, uh, I had uh, a really bad childhood and I've dealt with that by trying to do everything in my power to control keeping my kids from having the same. And I realized that now I'm just hurting them in a different way. I really need some help. And I was like, God can do so much with that acknowledgement. And so our time is almost gone. Uh, you can come here, Ross, in just a second. But um, I want to just give us a couple tools to try to help us on this point. If you don't let God heal your wounds, you're going to hurt people and continue to hurt people. Notice that I said let God heal the wounds. How many people out there have figured out that you can't heal your wounds on your own? It doesn't matter how many books you read, how many... Uh, reps you do at the gym, how many promises you make, how many whatever, whatever, whatever. There are some things that only God can heal. And I want to give you some tools. This is uh, one of my oldest friends uh, in the world. I know that we look, he looks a lot older than I do, but we're actually very close to the same age. Um, but he works uh, every day right here. I just um, wanted you to talk for a couple minutes, and then we have a slide to show on the screen to just help us before we're done. Yeah, uh, three kids in your late 30s turned your hair white. So uh, that's the moral of the story. But I would just say... Um, one of the reasons Luke asked me to come today is because my profession currently is just helping people that are struggling with substance use, but um, as well as mental health. And so rewind a long time. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I went to church like probably six times a week. Back then they had like the Sunday morning, the Sunday night, and then you went back on Monday night, and then you went back on Wednesday night, and then you were there on like Saturday morning. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, my dad was this guy right here. And uh, fast forward, like my childhood was really, really rough, uh, like really rough. My parents had a horrible marriage and we had five kids and I went off to be a pastor and um, I never dealt with any of that stuff. So I remember I, I, was in, uh, I was in seminary and I was in seminary during the day, <laughs> but out at the bars, the casino and everywhere else at night. And so I thought, like, once I get to that spot, I'm going to figure this thing out. But this thing, like, I never figured it out. And then I got to that spot, and then I never figured it out. And I was a pastor, and my life blew up. I remember it was 2011, and I thought, all right, this is like the time where I am in repentance, and I do well, and then I didn't do well. <laughs> I did the same thing. And, my, uh, and it was in 2015. September 2015, my life uh, blew up again. There was like a lot of things between then and there. But I went to a place for 90 days called Redemption House. And it was just a place where I could sit on a couch in a room with a bunch of guys, go to sleep on a twin bed with like 10 other guys in the same room. It was like a horrible place to, to be at in terms of comfort, but the best place I could ever be to be with a bunch of people, to say all the things that I struggled with, all the things that I went through in life, be heard, 
be not ashamed and not be judged, and it changed my life. Uh, my, <laughs> my wife now, at the time, we broke up probably like 30 times. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. Luke can attest to that. Um, but, like, we got married a year after I came back. That wouldn't happen if I didn't go to a place where I, I said, look, I can't, like, do this anymore, and I really need some help. Fast forward to now, uh, I have three little kids, three little boys. I would never have had those three little boys if I didn't stop and say, like, I need, I need to work on that thing that I never worked on. And so fast forward to now, professionally, I have three little boys as well, and I, I get to help people every day. And I can't tell you, like, the, life is hard, right? It's hard. It's not like you wake up, you go through your life, and it's easy. So if you're 15 or you're 75, you still have these days ahead of you. And I would just tell you, like, there's help for you. If you're struggling with whatever it is, there's help for you. And my job is just to help people find that help. This church and Luke, one of the things that I really love about him is he, like, really wants to help everybody. And so... Um, I don't know what you're going through, but there's help for you. And if you decide to say, like, today's, I'm not going to just figure it out on my own. I'm not going to read my Bible more, and I'm not going to, like, pull up my bootstraps and figure it out. But I need to go get some help. You have this number of days ahead of you that you could have full of joy, freedom, and the opportunity just to live a grace-filled life. So here's the ways that we can take it from here. We have a slide. Uh, I just want to give some clarity here. This is not the way we normally roll, but I wanted to be really specific. Uh, that's a little screwed up there, however that is, guys. We have a, it's okay. We have a, an awesome partner, a counseling center that's right down the street from here in downtown Arlington Heights, that they are Christian counselors who want to help you not by, like, beating you up with a big Bible. They want to use the Bible, but also all the tools that we know about people. I really respect them a lot. If you call them and tell them you came from our church, they would love to help you. And if you need some help financially to help get that sorted out, we would love to help you. Uh, if you have some, if you or someone in your life has that substance abuse cycle, Ross would love to help you. And maybe you're just like, I don't know, I just want to start. Call and come sit in my office and we'll chat. Don't do this. Don't let yourself think that you're the one who doesn't have to deal with it. You're not the one. Let's be honest, you're not. You're not. And there is so much healing available to you in Jesus Christ. God can heal anything. I am um, so thankful for my friend and the vulnerability he shared this morning. And I look around the room and see lots of people who could tell different stories or different, you know, the thing that we get handed in life is a different thing for everybody. That part is the part you can't change but we all have the same path to wholeness and healing and it is allowing someone to help us. It's described in the scripture as God wants to pour his love right down inside of you and heal you. And it's not too late and you're not the only one and you don't need to feel like you are. You can get help. Uh, in Jesus' name, that's what we came to talk about today. Would you uh, stand to your feet and bow your head? Ross will be hanging here, and some of my, uh, there's some folks that are here that can pray with people also after, so when I say amen in a minute, we're going to, uh, when I say amen in a minute, we're going to go to the brunch, and hopefully enjoy some time together, but uh, if you want to talk to someone or pray with someone, we would love for you to do that. 
God, I want to pray right now in Jesus' name that you would heal every wound that was brought into this room today. I want to pray, God, that you would just give us that courage to say, I need something. We see here in your word and we observe around us all the time the pain that comes when we don't sort things out. We keep on hurting people. And I want to pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would bring healing into every marriage and every child-parent relationship and every difficult thing that was brought here. There is nothing so broken that you can't heal it in Jesus' name. I want to pray, Lord, that you would do that, and I want to pray for it now in Jesus' name. If you agree, please say amen. This has been the Good News Neighborhood Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the song. I hope it's been helpful to you. We'll see you again soon. This is Good News.